Hi, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, editor of Airline Weekly, Madhuni Krishnan, and I'm joined again today by my friend and colleague, Edward Ned Russell. Today, in today's episode, we look at uh, Frontier Airlines, and it's surprising but not surprising plans to go public in the midst of the worst ever crisis in the airline industry. But remember, it's the worst ever crisis, but the stock market is really going gangbusters right now. So it's a uh, it's an interesting decision, but it's probably one that makes financial sense. We also talk about Lufthansa's um, plans for Frankfurt and Munich and, um, and what it's doing with your wings and when business travel might actually return. Thank you for joining us. You can you can reach me for fee. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at mu at skiff.com. You can reach Ned at er at skiff.com. Check us out at airlineweekly.com. And issue publishes every Monday, and we update the site throughout the week. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey, Edward Ned Russell. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Madhu. So before we get to to the subject of the day, I want to address a couple of pieces of reader ma- or listener mail that we got over the week, and that was about um, Qantas, which is actually an acronym. And for those of you who listened last week, um, I asked Ned what uh, what Qantas stand for stands for, and uh, I said Queensland and Northern Territories Air Service. And in fact, that is wrong. It is Queensland and Northern Territory, singular, aerial service. So I apologize to all, your, all of those um, that I might have uh, offended with my botched uh, acronym. And thank you for writing in. We appreciate the reader comments or listener comments. And if you, uh, if you have any more, keep them coming. You can reach me at mu at skiff.com. You can reach Ned at er, that's er for Edward Russell, at skiff.com. So Ned, let's talk about uh, Frontier. And why all these airlines are floating shares? It's exciting news, Madhu. I mean, if uh, if, if you're just uh, hearing about it now, Frontier Airlines filed the prospectus, so an S1, for an IPO on uh, uh, Monday night. And this is the second airline IPO in three weeks, Madhu, uh, after Sun Country. In, in exactly early a Feb- month. Yeah, in a month, in a month, after Sun Country in early February. So here we have the U.S. There's been no airline IPO prior since Mesa Airlines in 2018. And here we are on the worst crisis the industry has seen in a a century. And we've got two airlines debuting or wanting to debut, at least, on stock exchanges. Now, why? why, As you mentioned, this is the worst crisis in the airline industry for a century in its century of existence, actually. So why would an airline file to go public now? I mean, my guess is is we've seen the stock markets sort of diverge from overall economic trends. You know, uh, Guy, Guy Rizdal at Marketplace always loved to say the stock market's not the economy. And I think that's what we've been seeing. You know, s- shares are, are rising, even though the economic malaise has continued from COVID. And basically, you've got two airlines that want to, well, two airlines, private equity owners that want to cash in and uh, take advantage of that. That's a really good point. I mean, the stock market is booming and as Kai Rizdal says, the stock market is not the economy, but separately, I mean, it is booming. And it it's not just airlines. It, you, the travel industry has been laid low by this pandemic. I mean, no one's staying in, very few people are staying in hotels, but yet, uh, or traveling at all. But then late last year, Airbnb raised billions of dollars through its billions. IPO. I was looking at the numbers, Madhu. Airbnb went from, I think, about a $20 billion valuation when it was privately held to over $100 billion after it debuted. 
a hundred billion. That's crazy. That is that's really nuts. Now I live in I live in the I live in San Francisco in the Bay Area, sort of the heart of the, the beating heart of the tech industry. And uh, I believe I read in the Chronicle that there are the San Francisco Chronicle that there's something like thirty companies in the Bay based in the Bay Area that are planning to go public in the next few weeks. Um, so you know the the striking when the iron is hot. I mean the the stock market's nuts. As you mentioned, both um, Sun Country and Frontier are owned by private equity now, and it just is is now is as good a time as any to cash in. Uh, but you know, it come it's not without risks, right? I mean, what Sun Country? Or, let me back up. Sun Country is a lot smaller than Frontier. Frontier is about twice the size, almost exactly twice the size in terms of aircraft and destinations it reaches. About a hundred has about 100 aircraft and serves, what, 118? What, how many destinations, Ned? That sounds about right. 100, and, yeah, I couldn't tell you the top of my head, but about 100 destinations, 118 destinations, somewhere in there. Right, so versus 43 aircraft for Sun Country and um, 50-something destinations, I believe. So we're talking almost exactly twice the size. So while Sun right. Country's IPO is important, I mean, this is a much bigger deal. Oh, Absolutely. Uh, Frontier, and, and we should say front. This is not the first time Frontier has has filed an S one to, right. to go public. I forget the year, but it was a couple of years ago. They they filed one with the same intention, and then eventually shelved those plans. But yeah, Frontier is is certainly the they're the largest U.S. carrier that isn't currently public right. uh, out there. So while Sun Country, you know, I would think we would call them a niche carrier at this Very point, niche. Right, a yeah. niche carrier. Frontier is a legitimate ultra low cost carrier that you know they're they're. A large airline. I mean, in a lot of markets, they are a leading carrier. You know, think of Denver. They're third after United and Southwest, but they're still a large player there and yeah. have a lot of local brand recognition. And if you look at their top five markets, they have, um, they're all growth markets in terms of not just um, sort of leisure destinations. And we'll get to that in a second, but they are um, growing themselves. They're, you know, Denver, Las Vegas, Orlando, Phoenix. And Philadelphia. Was it Philadelphia? Yeah, yeah. it is Philadelphia. Yeah. Okay, that that may not be as growing as fast as the other four, but but uh, you know those other four cities are face, experiencing population growth and um, are leisure destinations in and of themselves. Right. So no, um, and I think one one interesting thing that jumped out at me on their uh, in their prospectus, and and this goes back to my my love of routes, is you know they listed destinations based on the number of routes they flew. So instead of your typical, here's our hub, here's our crew-based cities, you know, Denver, Vegas, the cities you just mentioned were, were the biggest dots solely because they have the most nonstop flights, uh, and they went down from there. So it really, you know, and Frontier for years has just shown this propensity to, to add lots of routes, low frequency, sort of keep what sticks, drop what doesn't, and you know, they clearly see some success in that, and they want to keep going with that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's... um. It's it's a really interesting time for them to go public, but it makes a lot of sense in in, in many ways. Now they are owned by Indigo, which has had great success with this model all over the world. I mean, the Indigo um, is has investments or launched or incubated, uh, depending on the airline and the the country. I mean, uh, Wizz Air in Europe, enormously successful ultra low cost carrier, um, Volaris in Mexico, JetSmart in Chile, and um, Frontier here. Well, don't US. forget Spirit Airlines. Oh, they, they, that's they right. They were behind Spirit Airlines turnaround from a, a niche budget airline to, I mean, all, the largest ultra low cost carrier in the in the U.S. right now. 
That's right. So they they have um, they have a very proven Indigo is a very proven track record of, of launching or investing in ultra low cost carriers and and taking them to market. Um, and they have a playbook, right? I mean, if you look at these um, these carriers that I mentioned, they all have um, interesting similarities. I mean, they all fly A three twenties, for example. They um, they they're hyper focused on leisure routes. And um, and low cost. Don't forget, cost. they came in. They came into Spirit. They came into Frontier. You know, I know those cases best. And, and slashed unit costs. Mm-hmm. So exactly get to that model. Yeah. Yeah, and and completely unbundled the onboard product and and the whole travel experience. I mean, if you look at Volaris in Mexico, right? I mean, <clears throat> Indigo, the the airline, I've, everything is unbundled. I mean, from from seat selection, carry on bags, drinks, etc. I mean, it's just it's the fare is really just the ticket to, ticket to enter, right? It's, Absolutely. Now, have you flown Valeris, Madhu? That is the question. I have not flown Valeris. Oh. I have not flown Valeris. <laughs> um, one of these days. <laughs> it is fun. Now, just remember, they do not take credit card for onboard purchase. At least they didn't when I... T- All right, it's been five years, so maybe they do now. I'm going to back up now. <laughs> you get any comments from our Mexican listeners? <laughs> Yeah, so the Indigo playbook has been very, very successful, and um, I'm, I'm um, curious to see how. I mean, you know, let's back up. Actually, Ned, you mentioned something about costs, and I was, this jumped out at me in the um, filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission um, that Frontier's average uh, chasm X per mile is ten around ten cents, compared with about sixteen cents for United, Delta, American, and Southwest. Only Allegiant. I believe in the prospectus, Frontier said that only Allegiant had lower costs at about eight cents per mile. Um, per mile. How does it compare to Spirit? Did you see Spirit in the S one? Uh, yes, Spirit is another one that had lower costs. Okay. Um, I had the number. I don't have the number at my fingertips right now, but uh, but uh, you know, Frontier Frontier has extraordinarily low costs. It's fo- really focused on taking more costs out of the system, and it. Um, it has an unbundled product. It's very much the Indigo playbook. Um, it is a different animal from Sun Country, which is <laughs> uh, to uh, no pun intended. To exactly, uh, long-standing tagline. But yeah, <laughs> an accidental pun there because, or accidental joke for those of you who don't know, Frontier has very proud of the animals it has on its tail fins. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a it, it is. Um, Anything else you want to tell us about Frontier and why it's going to market and what uh, what may be different about it? I mean, I think this is the the end game we've all expected. There have been IPO rumors for far longer than Sun Country even. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, frankly, while Sun Country was the IPO to watch, now that Frontier is in the market, they're the one to watch because, like yeah. you said, they're a far bigger airline. They've got a lot more planes and, you know, they've shown, yeah, Indigo's track record. I think it's really the the IPO to watch to see where it goes. Yeah, and the, they have some pretty aggressive expansion plans. I mean, they mentioned there are 518 pot- potential routes that they could serve with their model. Oh, and yeah. they're taking, you know, another 100 aircraft between now and 2028, which is... Including A321 XLRs, which could get them to... Uh, I remember speaking to Barry Biffle at the Paris Air Show back in 19, and uh, they could look at Hawaii. They could look at near South America with those. Hmm. They could even look at Europe, though he didn't... He, he deflected any questions on that, you know, right. but still you could get ULCC, Frontier, Denver, Honolulu on an XLR easily. Wow. Oh, interesting. So, so uh, let, let's switch topics a little bit, Ned. We... Uh, you covered uh, Lufthansa Group's earnings this well last week. And I did, I did. 
And since then, they've made made an interesting announcement. Tell us about it. <laughs> well, Lufthansa's made a couple interesting announcements. Um, I'll start with the most recent one. Eurowings, which is their, their budget, their low-cost arm, is, is Today, moving into... Today, it's their low-cost arm. Today, yes. <laughs> they, they've got different, many different ventures under the Lufthansa Group umbrella. But Eurowings is opening up a new base at Berlin-Brandenburg, where they're going to base several A320s and start some intra-Germany flights. Uh, but... What was interesting about it was they positioned it in the release as capturing a market that's been sort of uh, seeded by competitors during the crisis. But, uh, you know, any intrepid reporter would dive into the DO data and sees that it really hasn't been much uh, hmm. pullback from Berlin. EasyJet and Ryanair, which are the, were the market leaders following Air Berlin's collapse in 2017, are both doing strong and, and right now are planning uh, robust schedules this year. So... It, it seems uh, um, Eurowings is more about establishing a beachhead and trying to capture some of that Berlin traffic rather than taking uh, taking what other airlines have given up. If, yeah. So uh, what was yeah. Lufthansa talking about with uh, with that? I mean, that's a good question. I, I you know I looked and there didn't seem to the DO numbers. Now everyone knows these schedules are updated fairly close in, so they can still adjust for the year. But they're they're really at least in Europe, which is where Eurowings is flying. There's not been too much of a shift in in Berlin traffic, all the airlines that were in there before are still flying. It wasn't a Norwegian base, so they're not really pulling back there. Ryanair and EasyJet both are adding flights this summer. So, you know, I think this is an example of Lufthansa going in and trying to, to capture more of the market uh, where, you know, they really haven't been a, a big player. Right. And now, Nor, just I'm asking for, as about to get an explanation, I guess, is uh, uh, the Norwegians pull back retrenchment that they weren't hinting at that no because it you know when i looked at 2019 norwegian had four routes to berlin mm -hmm. and looking at 2021 they had three routes to berlin you know all to their bases in you know scandinavia so mm -hmm. it really you know, that can't that's not at play here really and ryanair and easyjet were both the leading carriers in 2018 and 2019 in berlin and they are due to be the leading carriers in 2020 as well 2021 oh. sorry <laughs> And, based on capacity, it's just based on capacity. So yeah. right. Another an announcement, I um, or another thing, Lufthansa snuck in its uh, earnings, which you, which you covered, is the um, that. Well, as we all know, Lufthansa has several brands, and it's sometimes a little bit confusing even for us to keep up with how many brands they have. Um, in addition to the main line, they have, of course, Lufthansa operates, of course, like Swiss. Right. Um, Austrian, Brussels, Eurowings. Yeah, I think that's about right. And, the, and Air Dolmati, is that still a thing? Ooh, that is. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, it's right. still a thing. Plus, don't they anyway. have, do they still, anyway, so, and they have that investment with uh, Sun Express. So um, uh, I believe they exited Sun Express. That's right. You're right. Year. They exited yep. Sun Express. Um, so anyway, they have multiple brands, but Frankfurt and Munich were very special to, Unite, uh, to Lufthansa. Tell us why, Ned. Lufthansa now, I don't know the full backstory, but their labor unions basically blocked any of the other Lufthansa Group carriers from flying to Frankfurt or Munich, uh, competitive grounds. So you basically, you know, the airline was again wouldn't could the airline could not compete against itself within the group. So you didn't you wouldn't see Brussels or Swiss or Austrian flying to these hubs um, competing with Lufthansa. Now there has been some uh, you know, Lufthansa has reached an agreement with its unions, allowing some of this competition to to not even competition just allowing these group brands to fly into these major hubs 
and Brussels Airlines, uh, first off the gate, you know, announced they're going to take over two of Lufthansa's flights this summer uh, between Frankfurt and Brussels. And uh, Carson Spohr, CEO of Lufthansa Group, was saying that Eurowings could add flights to some leisure destinations around the Mediterranean uh, this summer. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, we're going to be open up. Hi, and we're back, and let's we're 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 continuing to talk about Lufthansa and the, and how it's one of the only carriers I can think of that has fortress hubs that it guards against itself. I know, and so you, you know this summer, <laughs> this summer we will shall see how this plays out. But I think the biggest opportunity for Lufthansa is is bringing in the budget Eurowings brand and flying to some of these these holiday destinations where most people think people are going to want to go this summer. You know, looking at <laughs> <laughs> Not to give away our next segment, but you know, IATA itself is saying business travel is twelve to eighteen months behind leisure travel recovery. So, you know, this summer, if leisure travel comes back strong, you're going to see a need to fly to you know Majorca and uh, mm-hmm. Malta and, and these places. So, well, that was the third sort of thing that Lufthansa snuck into its earnings and also subsequently announced. Right? I mean, they're planning more leisure routes too, as you said, Majorca and and routes that they normally wouldn't have flown with Mainline. Is it, do I have that right? I'm not sure about mainline routes per se. Uh, Eurowings is adding more flying to the Mediterranean. They've announced they're going to take Connect Majorca to Birmingham and Manchester in the UK, Mm -hmm. which were two Thomas Cook routes that, you know, Ah, Thomas Cook collapsed. Right. uh, 2019. 2019. Yeah, 2019. So those are two formerly Thomas Cook routes they're going to go in on. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, they are definitely diversifying away from basically connecting their core Germany to parts of Europe to flying elsewhere which could be a good diversification uh strategy we shall see you know yeah. it's uh, like we said with norwegian air a few weeks ago you know nature abhors a vacuum and wherever the crisis has created a vacuum someone seems eager to move in well, we'll be, as we work into our next segment i mean one thing one thing that i, I was curious to hear about ned and and if they said anything and if lufthansa said anything it's earnings i mean lufthansa is always positioned lufthansa mainline has always positioned itself as this premium airline uh, premium intercontinental airline, right? I mean, it, right. It, it's in its marketing and sort of its brand identity. It's it's it, the, the design. It's it goes for that niche. Now, in over the summer, um, Karsten Spohr made a bit of news, a very sm- a small bit of news, when he said that uh, he's seeing. The, the company is seeing more le- leisure travelers traveling in first in business than than they had in the past. And that sort of sparked this, well, now are people flying or luxury travelers flying, um, flying you know, are they the ones occupying business class seats and not business people? Uh, so did was there any color there in this, in last week's earnings on business travel? There wasn't a ton. He reiterated that general sentiment that they've seen more leisure travelers in premium cabins, but he didn't elaborate on it. I mean, my argument is my view is that fares are low currently because there are a few people traveling and there are leisure travelers out there like, oh, yeah, I'll pay the the difference to fly in a more comfortable seat. But he didn't talk about it like it was a big uh, a big shift. Um, Hmm. He did. He mentioned it in passing. So the shift occurred over the summer then. That's and we're just saying this trend continue. Yeah, you know, Air France KLM actually uh, in their earnings several weeks ago talked more about that. You know, they see the opportunity of leisure travelers in their premium cabins as a, a big, uh, big, you know, a 
driver of their recovery more so than Lufthansa and IAG, just because, you know, for example, Paris is such a big leisure destination, so mm-hmm. they can get those people, you know, people want to go visit Paris, they're willing to pay for business class and fly over, uh, whereas there are fewer people that probably want to spend their holidays in Frankfurt. No offense to Frankfurt, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, now let's move on to, um, to IATA, which had a, a media briefing today, and I'm sure they said a lot more about le- uh, business and leisure traveler travel. Yes, yeah. they did. Uh, Alexander Dejuniak, director general of IATA, this morning, he said that based on what they are seeing currently with, with vaccination programs, you know, developed countries could be seeing the, the beginning of the recovery this summer. And that he's referring to the northern summer. So, you know, June, July, August, September period. And that's that's a big shift. You know, mm. they they are expecting the the turn to happen. Uh, the problem is, I mean, problem that recovery is leisure first with business travelers. Like he reiterated this twelve to eighteen months behind in significant mm. numbers. I mean, there will be some business travel. So you know, it is a good sign that we're going to be seeing the recovery you know take off, so to speak. Uh, you know, firm recovery. Yeah, but. You know, there's still a ways to go. I was just looking at the ADA forecast, and they still expect traffic overall globally to be down as, you know, um, be about 38% of a year mm-hmm. of 2019 this year. So while recovery over from about 20% in 2020, it's still not, it's, it's, it's not an impressive number. There's still a long ways to go. But it's a good sign if the recovery has begun and, and airlines can start to count on regular monthly increases from the summer. Did it change IATA's forecast? Or did the their, did IATA's forecast change for 2022? I mean, has the timeline? They had been saying for months that 2024 is when we can expect air travel to go back to 2019 levels. I mean, have we accelerated the timeline a little bit? No, they didn't actually change any of the timeline. So the the 38 percent number is from uh, their guidance about a month ago, and they didn't update that today. They still expect the recovery to take several years into 2024. You know, it's going to be leisure coming back first and then business travel trickling back. And they didn't go into it, but there's always there's a lot of people believe that there's going to be some business travel that's going to permanently shift to to virtual meetings and everything. So, you know, one thing uh, IATA spoke a little bit about is it's going how, you know, conferences industry and how that comes back is going to, to play into the recovery in business travel. And no one really knows exactly where the conference industry is going to be and how what it's going to be like to attend a conference in about a year or so. So there's still a lot of question marks. So they're keeping with their 2024 forecast for now. Interesting. And, and I, I, I am curious. I mean, no no one's really said, I've been able to quantify. So none of us knows. But uh, how much how much business travel has been replaced by by Zoom and, and other tele- video conferencing tools? I mean, it seems like it comes up in every single earnings call that we've listened to in the last several weeks, you and I, um, that all airline CEOs and management think there's some percentage that will be lost forever. There's some structural change, but they all seem kind of optimistic that uh, that the bulk of business travel will come back. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I think it's hard to say how much has been replaced permanently versus how much will come back. And then it's it's funny. I remember reading this from an Azul uh, release a few weeks ago. You know, they are uh, from an Azul presentation with uh, Raymond James uh, a few weeks ago. They were saying how even though some percentage of business travel will be replaced or, or will go away permanently because of the crisis, go to Zoom. 
in a country like Brazil that's growing, Azul still expects business travel to grow past 2019 levels in the next few years, uh, simply because it's, it's a growing market. So even right. if there is a 20% reduction, and I'm throwing out 20% number myself, in business travel shifts to Zoom, uh, you got to think about how much is growing. So there's, it's, it's, there's pluses and minuses to that coin, you know. Right. And the conventional wisdom, of course, seems to have centered on this this fact that large corporates, companies, large corporations will not be sending their employees back on the road anytime soon, at least not in the numbers they did in 2019. Right. Um, smaller companies will. And, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense. The way this was explained to me is if you're, say, uh, Procter & Gamble and you need to place Colgate and make a sale for C Colgate and CVS, you don't... You, you don't need to sell that, right? It's gonna that you don't need to make a trip to to sell Colgate to CVS. If you're Ned's widget company and you need to place your widgets in ten stores, you know, in a geographical area, then you're it is imperative that you go out and make that sale in person. So, I mean, uh, it's just it's an it'll. I think one of the more interesting trends of this pandemic is just seeing how business travel and how airlines approach business travel. I mean, instead of focusing on the Procter's and Ga Procter and Gamble's of the world, they're focusing more on, and it's become more, the small, medium-sized enterprises have become more important to them. Absolutely. And you hear that, you know, Delta talking about yeah. small, medium-sized enterprise uh, business travelers versus large corporates. And I, I was speaking to Helene Becker at Cowan, I believe, and she was saying, you know, we've, she's never heard them speak of small right. SMEs, essentially, before uh, breaking them out as a separate category from business travel. So there's definitely been a shift at airlines. I think we're still seeing that shift go on, and we don't know exactly how it's going to shake out, but it's, right. it's a shift that's occurring. There's a lot that remains to be seen with this pandemic and its effect on the airline industry. Absolutely. Well, Edward, I'm do when are you going to get on a plane next? <laughs> God, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I, I, I am in no hurry. I will, I'll confess. I'm in absolutely no hurry to get back on a plane. But, uh, anyway, Edward, Ned Russell, thank you for joining me. I know it's your job, but thanks for joining me again this week. <laughs> thank you, Madhu. You can reach, um, if you have any comments or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach Ned at ER and that's ER for Edward Russell at skiff.com. And you can reach me at MU at skiff.com. Uh, while you're at it, check us out at airlineweekly.com. And you issue publishes every Monday and we update the site throughout the week. And you can find this podcast here or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week. 